Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We are thrilled to bring you this morning Diana Furchgott Roth, uh, former Office of Policy Planning for George Herbert Walker Bush, and now working with the Trump administration and Treasury. You're working with Secretary Mnuchin right now, right? Yes. And yes. it's on economic policy. Right. You have a span across Republican politics, I would suggest, as no one truly does. There's some that did it then, there's some that did it along the way, and there's some that are doing it now. But I would argue in Washington, nobody's spanned it like you. What's the difference between Treasury, financial, and the process of Republican pro politics and administration now versus under President Bush? Well, I started off with President Reagan in the Council of Economic Advisors, yes. and it's been a great privilege to work uh, under four administrations, uh, President Reagan, President George H.W. Bush, President George W. Bush, and now President Trump. Mm. And we're here to talk about President George H.W. Bush. Right. And he was a very kind man, as many people have said. And he did his best to uh, cut the deficit and keep the economy going. And what was really right. interesting is that in 1992, what we were saying is that the economy was growing. But the National Bureau of Economic Research didn't mark the end of the recession, the end of the recession being in March right. 1991 until December 1992. So in December 1992, when President Bush said the economy had been growing all year, right. turned out he was right. It, it had been but, growing but above But it was Marty Feldstein's fault, right? Well, I'm not blaming okay, any Okay, we'll blame Marty for What is so important here, and this is great, and I say this with great spirit for the humor of the former president, we need a definition of voodoo economics, and you're the only one on the planet that can really, I mean, Jim Baker can do it and others can do it, but Diana Frischgott-Roth, what is voodoo economics, just once and for all? Well, I don't know what voodoo economics <laughs> is, but right now we have cut taxes and the economy is growing very strongly. We had great GDP numbers uh, last month. The economy is growing above 3% right I'll now. I'll take your point. There's a little debate about the vector there. But this is important. And this goes back to something that Michael McKee uh, said uh, to me, I guess. And again, folks, Mike McKee will join me on radio here on Bloomberg Surveillance through the morning. I'm thrilled with that. And, and what's so interesting here is the lessons we learned about cutting taxes to spur growth and maintain fiscal integrity. That was something important to President Bush, mm -hmm. important to President Reagan. There was an experiment then, and under President Trump's leadership, there's an experiment now. How's the experiment going? Can we really grow our way out of a fiscal challenge? The difference between 2016 and the economy now in 2017 and 2018 is remarkable. Agreed. Uh, people thought that the, the economy could not grow at higher than 2%, and it's on track to grow at higher than 3% this year. Business investment soared. Consumer confidence, business confidence are up. 
business and well, investment increasing. Okay, I'll, I'll take your point, uh, Diana. But what is so important here is to understand that idea of a twin deficit. My chart of the year is that linkage of trade deficits, something dear to President Trump, and also the linkage of our fiscal deficit. And the vector of that is getting back to the time of uh, when you were very young, of Reagan and, and Bush Sr. Do we have a risk here of twin deficits into 2020 or, frankly, beyond? It's up to Congress to uh, put in place proposals to cut spending, to cut the spending. And President Trump proposed cutting spending. President George H.W. Bush uh, proposed cutting spending. And it's up to Congress to follow and Mm -hmm. make those spending cuts that presidents propose. Presidents propose, but Congress has to, in the last, uh, Congress is responsible for how much is spent. Well, this is interesting. Diana Fritz-Gutrod, thank you so much. Joining us right now in Washington to begin a discussion on this is the right gentleman. And that, as you know, since November 30th on the death of George Bush, uh, there's been all sorts of worthy speak. He is a worthy in the communications of the Republican Party. Ron Bonjean has had a most interesting, interesting uh, career managing the message of Republicans. He's reached huge acclaim for that, frankly, by Democrats as well. And we're thrilled that Ron Bonjean uh, can join us uh, this morning. Ron, what was your biggest challenge of communication Thank- for Republicans? That, well, thanks. It's great to be here. I, you know, I would say that, you know, the biggest challenges are uh, getting the message out in a consistent way. And that that is very challenging when you have all kinds of elected officials in the Republican Party who want to communicate different things, getting them unfocused on a single message to say the same things at the same time can be very, very difficult. And especially in today's age, obviously, you have the, uh, President Trump uh, communicating via Twitter and really driving that driving that message the way he wants to, and I think there's a lot of uh, Republicans that are are, are figuring out uh, the direction of the Republican Party after after the election. Oh, after the election and the direction, do you just assume that President Trump runs for a second term? Is that just a given? I think in he your Washington. Yes, I think he runs for a second term, and I think he's going to give Democrats a run for their money. You know, if Joe Biden runs, he's really the only relatable, I think, candidate at this point to Americans mm-hmm. that could really uh, that could really uh, give a good be be a good sparring partner versus. Uh, Versus President Trump. I mean, he's just a master of the message in terms of activating people and getting people riled up and getting, you know, harnessing that anger that's out there. And I feel like there are so many Democrats right, right now are running that they're going to dilute their own message. You were directly involved in the process and processes of the last election uh, at the Rotunda today and, and, and yesterday and at the National Cathedral today. There will not only be uh, the remains of the 41st president his son, the 43rd president, with Mrs. Bush uh, yesterday. Some of those images were wonderful. But also Jeb Bush, which is maybe the more modern Bush and certainly the one that Ron Bonjean has bounced off of the most in recent uh, years. Can Jeb Bush still run in the Republican Party? I think more along the lines of um, on the local level, potentially the state level, there are still opportunities out there. 
you know, uh, for for those voices. Uh, you know, there is a polarization in politics, obviously, on the left and, and the right. And a polarization within the Republican experiment, I would say. It's, it, you know, I, I would agree with that. And I think that's going on in the Democratic Party, too. You have this polarization on both sides. Um, that's that's really pulling people to the left and right. There are still opportunities in those moderate suburbs um, that Republicans lost um, uh, as a referendum on President Trump um, to elect more moderate voices, I think, in the future. And, uh, you know, I think that the Republican Party still remains strong. We still have the White House. We still have the Senate. We grew uh, our numbers in the Senate. But as you mentioned earlier to me, you've got to take back some of the losses. Where does that strategy come from? I'm fascinated within what I think all of our listeners, whatever their politics, they observe the president, the presidential tweets, the conferences, the gaggle around the helicopter as he dashes. Forget about that communication Mm -hmm. strategy. There's got to be a communication strategy for Republicans to get away from his core constituency. Does that strategy exist, or where where's the kernel of that? It's not in the lunchroom at the Hay Adams Hotel, is it? Well, no, it's not. I mean, his core constituency is 40%, though, uh, of, of voters right now. So you have to figure out where can you get the other— At the margin, where do you get the next 6, right, you, 8, 10? That's at, your world. That's exactly. That's our world, and we have to figure that out. I mean, I think that there is a number of things we should be doing. We need to be appealing much more to, to women— to white female voters, uh, to, to frankly be much more inclusive um, in, our, in our messaging. And that has to happen on a consistent basis. Right now what we're doing and what the Democrats are doing is primary, is driving messages. It feels like we're both, both sides are running primary elections right now instead of the general. And the general election feels like it doesn't really exist, meaning that we're driving messages on either side to motivate our voters to the polls to try to out-primary each other. Okay, I love that phrase. That's a Ron Bongean original, out-primary <laughs> each other. Guess what? After that, you got elected. Now, for example, Ronald Reagan, and I would suggest President Bush, maybe they went right, but they moved to the center as they moved to the general election. Mm-hmm. I'm right. Those days are over, right? Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, every election is different. I mean, you know, when um, uh, – President Bush lost to Bill Clinton. Uh, it was over the economy, um, and it was over whether or not uh, President Bush could relate to relate to uh, relate to Americans. And he started feeling out of touch. And the President Clinton took advantage of that, and they called it it's it's uh, what is it? It's the economy, stupid was the uh, was the line. Yeah. And so I think you know, and in, in within a year or two, I mean, within a year, we have to start a consistent message that is much more appealing or else it's going to be just another primary election. Well, just another primary election and just another primary process. But the process this time is different from K Street and I Street and the other, you know, the secret dark corridors out by Reagan uh, Airport. There's offices of Republicans trying to figure out the primary system. Inform our audience, how does that that ballet start and why is it different from the last time around? What I've learned is New Hampshire is not as important as it used to be. Oh, I think that this, that's right. I think... Um that, you know, we start out with, with a slight advantage in uh, Ohio and Florida because we have Republican governorships there. You know, we just won a very divisive election in Florida. That means we have the infrastructure um, of that state party apparatus to help us with those primaries, with that primary system. But the, the primary states are changing. 
Um, you know, we have we have states like North Carolina. That's that feels like it's changing. Um, you know, uh, other states like Arizona, for instance, that's obviously okay. If, if North Carolina discovers Connor Lambs, plural, the gentleman from northwest, north southwest, rather of Pittsburgh, those kind of Democrats, Republicans have to be different, don't they? You know, I, I think of Austin Powers in that movie, behave. Republicans have to behave if they're up against a more traditional Scoop Jackson Democrat, right? I think it really depends on each district and each mess, you know, and, and, and the candidates themselves, um, you know, and, and what, what's going on in that state and district. I mean, that, that's the thing. Now, right now, it's a, it's a referendum on President Trump, and it will be a presidential election. But on the local level, they're going to have to continue to, to, um, to keep the uh, Trump base enthusiastic while trying to reach out to other voters. And that's a difficult needle to thread. Ron Bonjean, let's leave it there. Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate the perspective here of a gentleman in uh, communications for the Republican Party. Ron Bonjean, thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Uh, this morning. I said to someone a few days ago, would you just find the admiral? And, of course, at Bloomberg Surveillance, there can be only one admiral, and that is James Trevitas, of course, with the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Uh, admiral, we are thrilled to have you with us uh, today. Um, I, I was reading about, Admiral, the Grumman torpedo bomber of World War II. And the basic uh, aeronautics of what President Bush flew was it drove like a truck. I mean, it was a little different back then, wasn't it? It was. And this is all, we say, fly-by-wire. I mean, this is nothing electronic, obviously, just some basic hydraulics. Truck is a good example. It's like a, a truck made by the Soviet Union. I mean, this thing just banged through the air. He was so proud of it and was such a, an extraordinary uh, naval hero, and we all miss him so deeply. I knew him uh, reasonably well, wrote some speeches for him over the years, and Tom, when I was the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, he was one of the biggest supporters of NATO. We're going to miss that gentleman. Well, that is there. I mean, we've got eight ways to go, and I want Michael McKee to jump in, but but this is so important, and we saw it with the Bloomberg interview with Mr. Poroshenko uh, yesterday on Ukraine. John Mearsheimer of Chicago talking about maybe we overreached. Did President Bush ever suggest in his writings or directly to you, Admiral, that maybe we overreached too much in our expansion of NATO? Nope. He was someone who was rock solid on that. Of course, he, he lived those years. Uh, and also, we need to mention, still living, the Secretary of State in those days, James Baker, who will be featured prominently in the funeral today. You'll see his face often. He was one of Bush's closest friends. The two of them really created this new world. And I think, despite all the concern and claim that perhaps we pushed uh, Russia into a corner. I just don't see it that way historically. No NATO tanks, Tom, ever went rolling into Warsaw or Bucharest to force those countries to join NATO. But there were plenty of Soviet tanks back in the day that rolled in there. Those nations wanted to be in NATO. We're lucky they're in NATO. One of the things 
that he is uh, known for, if you are uh, nerd enough uh, at looking at these things, is the way he redesigned the National Security Council and set up Brent Scowcroft as a sort of honest broker. Uh, you remember in the Nixon years uh, be- before uh, that happened, you had the, the big fights between uh, uh, the Henry Kissinger faction and uh, whoever was at state at the time uh, and and George Schultz and the Reagan administration, um, that really made a difference. He had a, George H.W. Bush came to office with a specific idea of how foreign policy should be run. He did. And the way he did foreign policy and defense policy and international diplomacy were a direct reflection of his character, which focused on team building. Uh, You know, as he would say, there's no I in the word team, T-E-A-M. And it it was a reflection of his own athleticism, coming and playing on great baseball teams, and his personality and the way he was raised. And he wanted Lieutenant General Brent Scowcroft to be the national security advisor because Brent, who's still alive in his 90s, marvelous gentleman, uh, was the embodiment of no one of us is as smart as all of us thinking together. That was the heart of the NSC under President Bush the first, and it was well run. Did he leave it in as good a shape as he found it? And President Bill Clinton's first term, not particularly successful from a foreign policy standpoint, and then you had a lot of the Former Bush 141 alumni end up in Bush 43's cabinet, and uh, people uh, are looking at you know the legacy of, of George W. Bush in the Middle East and wondering how did how do we go wrong from father to son? Part of it can be explained by 9/11 and the extraordinary pressure that put on that administration. Uh, the Bush 43 administration. Part of it was personalities. Um, I was at the time uh, working directly for Secretary of Defense Don Rumsfeld, strong personality. Vice President Dick Cheney, strong personality. National Security Advisor Condi Rice, who I think tried very much to follow the Scowcroft model. But in those years, those were big personalities. We were in a war. And I think it, it was a very different time for the nation. So uh, if you want to look for a model, right. it is definitely Bush 41. If you're just joining us, James Trevitas with us. He is, of course, with the Fletcher School, former admiral uh, of the United States Navy on this special day for Bloomberg Surveillance. Our coverage from Washington and from New York of this day of uh, memory and services at the National Cathedral for uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. Mike, your questions are so good and so well-informed. I want you to continue with the Admiral. (laughs) Michael, pick it up again, please. Let me, uh, as long as we have you here and we have an Admiral, let me just ask you uh, something about what's going on today. The whole U.S.-China trade issue gets caught up in the larger U.S.-China relationship. And we saw, and this didn't get a lot of publicity, but during the G20 summit in Argentina, the U.S. sent a destroyer through the South China Sea into territory China is claiming. Uh, how dangerous is that situation? How, uh, how much of a conflict do we really have with the Chinese over this? Because people are talking about, well, if, the, if Trump fails, whatever, we could have a new Cold War. Is that what we're facing, the kind of thing we went through with the Soviet Union? Or is it a different kind of challenge? I think it'll end up ultimately being a different kind of challenge, Michael. But um, we have tactical challenges with China in 
tariffs, trade, intellectual property, cyber conflict. Those are things I think we can negotiate our way through, and, and I think we will. The one I worry about is the Uber strategic challenge is, in fact, the South China Sea. Enormous body of water, size of the Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico combined, full of hydrocarbons. China claims it in its entirety as territorial sea. It's a preposterous claim. The United States and our allies are pushing back on it, not only in international courts where it's been rejected, but also operationally, your point, driving our ships right through these claimed territorial seas. I think that's going to be a tough one to negotiate. But uh, no, in the end, I think we'll find a way to avoid stumbling into a full-blown Cold uh, War. I've got about five more minutes of good questions on Robert Kaplan's Asia Cauldron, but we'll have to leave it there with a good admiral. Admiral Stavridis, we are thrilled that you are with us today. Thank you uh, so much. He is at Tufts University and their Fletcher School as well. Michael McKee with me. This is Tom Keene in Washington. Michael McKee in New York on this most special day for the nation. Morning for uh, the memory and services of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. With us now, William Hoagland. Bill Hoagland, who is truly one of the nation's experts on our debt and deficit with the bipartisan uh, council. Bill Hoagland, uh, we go back to Henry Clay in 1852. And then with the finishing of the Capitol in 1860 and 1868, Abraham Lincoln and Thaddeus Stevens, and on to President Reagan, President Ford, John McCain on August 31st of uh, this year, and now another president lying in state in the Rotunda. You visited the Rotunda two days ago, and you had the privilege of visiting in the quiet early morning. What was it like being in the Rotunda? Very moving, uh, Tom. Uh I, of course, had spent many years in the Capitol. I worked at the Senate. I spent many a day walking through the rotunda. Uh, but to uh, visit the rotunda with the president lying in state uh, uh, and uh, in the quiet of that early morning hour um, is uh, was brought back a lot of memories and my uh, affection for the for the president. Uh, um, over Cam Mayer, to be quite John, honest with you. John Meacham will eulogize today. Of course, his one volume is considered definitive. Tell us of the fiscal George H.W. Bush. I think it's a bit of a mystery and a bit of confusion over what his fiscal beliefs really were. Well, I do think that uh, clearly uh, um, the when he came into office to get the nomination, there was some concern that this was a liberal Republican, an Eastern uh, state Republican, who uh, uh, was not to be trusted on some of the conservative issues of uh, control and uh, not raising taxes. And so, of course, his big his statement down in New Orleans and uh, on the nom- on getting the nomination, read my lips, came back to haunt him uh, because when we went into the 1990, uh, we had a number of issues facing us. We had a savings and loan meltdown. We had a number of problems. Congress was being controlled by Democrats. And we negotiated a a budget agreement in 1990. It was a budget agreement that uh, uh, did uh, require the negotiations and compromise. And in that compromise, uh, taxes uh, were raised. But it was a $500 billion deficit reduction. He He was concerned and his staff were concerned about the deficit. They would have preferred to have controlled it on the spending side. But we were working with a Democratic Congress, and so he had to negotiate. Um, I, I had the privilege and honor 
of attending the 25th anniversary of, of the president at, at his library in, um, in College Station uh, back in April of 2014. Um, as I was uh, getting ready to go onto the stage, uh, the president came up behind me in his wheelchair and pulled me on my uh, shirt tie or my coat tie and said to me something about how uh, I was responsible for him being a one-term president uh, because uh, that negotiated settlement. Of course, he was kidding. He was uh, he was wonderful and working with the staff, and uh, I uh, I will always remember that uh, last uh, direct encounter I had with the president. It uh, it's quaint to remember now that. Uh, in fiscal 1990, the year that you put together this agreement, uh, the federal budget deficit was $221 billion. Right, right, and right, now it right. is going to be this year a trillion dollars. And, and right. everybody was panicked about $221 billion. Uh, things seem to have changed. It was, I, I guess to get back kind of at, at what Tom was saying, uh, when he ran for president in 1980, he derided the idea of tax cuts paying for themselves as voodoo economics. Voodoo and he, and he said, uh, you know, read my lips, no new taxes. But he agreed rather readily to uh, revenue enhancers, as the uh, statement that they put out at the time said. Um, what, did, what did he really think about deficit spending and taxes? Uh, this was before the whole uh, Republican tax pledge and, and that sort right. of thing. Well, one one thing I would say uh, uh, was that, Mike, that he uh, that that 1990 agreement was the beginning. Of course, yes, he lost his uh, lost that uh, his uh, term of office, his one term office. But with but with Clinton coming in, there was a 1993 agreement, which is strictly a partisan agreement on the mm-hmm. Democratic side. Which and then there was a 1997 agreement, uh, and I would argue and that that 1997 agreement brought us to a balanced budget. Uh, which I had the honor of working on. It, uh, I do think that he did start that, even though it was a cost him his, cost him his job uh, as a one-term president. He did start the process of really focusing in the 1990s. Uh, subsequent to the 1997 agreement, uh, after we reached a balanced budget, then uh, things kind of went to went in the wrong direction. But I think I think he was pragmatic about. Uh, deficits. I think he believed deficits mattered. I believe that he thought that they should be controlled. I believe his focus was primarily on the spending side, but overall he was pragmatic and knowing that to reach an agreement to try to reduce those deficits, we had to focus not just on the spending side, we had to focus on revenues too. William Hogan with us. Well, excuse me, Bill. Uh, Bill Hoagland with us, uh, with the bipartisan uh, council, can't say enough about his abilities on the debt and the deficit. Bill, can I ask the dumb question of the day? Is there any any evidence we can actually, quote unquote, cut spending? Um, Well, I I think there, uh, I think one has to say yes, there, there has to be some hope here that we can look at the uh, $4 trillion that the federal government spends, and surely we can find areas within that that we can control. Uh, I do think we have to focus on those programs that are the most uh, most difficult politically, and that are the entitlement programs, whether it be Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. Those are not politically popular 
programs to address. In fact, our current president has said they were off the table. I don't know how we can control deficits long-term on the spending if we don't realize that we have to focus on our, on those programs that are mandatory for the future. At the same time, I think that uh, coming back to the president, George Bush, uh, George Walker Bush, I do think that he felt that uh, you had to have a compromise here in a democratic system, with, uh, and that meant that you had to focus not just on the spending side, but you had to focus on revenues. If you do both together, I think then you have more likelihood of getting agreement to do the spending side. Um, politicians seem to be, uh, if, if not smarter, more aware of euphemisms, so the idea of uh, campaigning for revenue enhancement is probably off the table. But right. I'm wondering, you know, you're, we're going to see, if the deficit keeps going up, uh, we're going to see somebody trying to campaign on bringing down the deficit. But how do they do that? And I'm wondering, in 2020, um, Donald Trump isn't going to want to campaign on the idea of rolling back his tax cuts. So uh, how, how do you how do you make the case now? Because we're not seeing bond yields get out of control because of uh, the deficit. Well, I, again, I think there are two things that uh, I think Leon Panetta, when he was leaving office, said there are two ways to control uh, uh, the deficit. One was through uh, crisis, and the other was through leadership. And uh, unfortunately, I don't see the leadership at, in, at either end of Pennsylvania Avenue. I say no. that with respect to both. And so I'm afraid that uh, at some point there that there might be a crisis, and then that crisis comes, and that will force their attention uh, to deal with this uh, in a serious yeah. manner that they're not dealing with now. William Hoagland, thank you so much for being with us today. Senior Vice President of the Bipartisan Policy Center uh, in Washington, which is wonderful perspective there on the reach of the state of our fiscal economics from the time of President Bush to the present uh, as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.